Hi, welcome to the ACE Tip Podcast. We come to you from the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, and via the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, of the National Institute on Drug Abuse's Justice Opioid Community Innovation Network, or JCOIN. I'm your host, Danielle Rudes, Associate Professor of Criminology, Law, and Society, and the Deputy Director at ACE, and one of the leads on the Capacity Building Corps of the CTC for JCOIN. This podcast is all about translating science into sense. It's about helping criminal justice practitioners, students, and everyday people learn about cool developments in the justice research world, but without all the dryness of the ivory tower. There's a lot of really great research out there, and we'd like to bring it to you in bite-sized doses to help you understand it and be able to use it. No PhD required. Each episode will break down scientific research into a 12 to 15 minute podcast. You can listen to it wherever you are and when it's convenient for you. We'll give you the science, but in a way that makes sense. We also finish with an explanation that translates the research into real words that explain why it's important and how and why you might want to use it. So let's get started. In 2011, Associated Press journalist Mike Stoby published a brief history of more than 40 studies in which U.S. government doctors and scientists experimented on disabled people and individuals who were in prison. These included giving hepatitis to patients in a Connecticut mental health hospital, squirting a pandemic flu virus up the noses of incarcerated individuals in a Maryland prison, and injecting cancer cells into chronically ill people in a New York hospital. Stobie wrote, quote, At best, these were a search for life-saving treatments. At worst, some amounted to curiosity-satisfying experiments that hurt people, but provided no useful results, end quote. One such curiosity-satisfying experiment was the infamous Tuskegee study, in which the United States Public Health Service, in trying to learn more about syphilis and justify treatment programs for Black Americans, withheld adequate treatments from a group of poor Black men infected with the disease, causing needless pain and suffering for the men and their loved ones. Partly in response to public outcry over this cruel study, the United States Congress enacted the National Research Act of 1974, which formed a national commission for the protection of human subjects of biomedical and behavioral research. While research ethics is a core tenet of the research process, regardless of the population under study, certain groups are especially vulnerable to exploitation. These groups, which include children, pregnant women, infants, and incarcerated individuals, require special protection. It makes sense that incarcerated individuals require extra safeguards when it comes to their participation in research. Constrained choices dictate their day-to-day lives. From their daily routines to when and what they eat, incarcerated folks have limited individual liberties. It's not a large leap to see how research in prisons or jails has the potential to be exploitative, coercive, or unethical. In 1976, the Commission published guidelines for conducting research on incarcerated individuals. Those guidelines would inform research practices for the next 30 years. Rather than banning this research altogether, the Commission recommended restrictions on research practices with incarcerated individuals and emphasized two ethical frameworks, justice and respect for persons. The concept of justice centers on whether incarcerated individuals take on too much of the burden of research and to what degree they benefit from it. In other words, 
Does the research community study them simply because they are easily available? And what do incarcerated people get out of participating in the study? The concept of respect for persons considers whether incarcerated research participants have complete autonomy. Are they able to make fully consenting decisions? Ultimately, the commission accepted a protectionist view of research in prisons. Because of the risk of pressure from prison staff, the impact that incarceration can have on a person, and the demographics of incarcerated populations, this group requires heightened protections when participating in research, and if those protections aren't possible, then the research should not happen. In the three decades following the guidelines publication, the U.S. correctional system changed substantially. Reflecting wider cultural, political, and legal changes happening in this country, the U.S. correctional system population escalated exponentially, as did the overrepresentation of men and women of color. Conditions of confinement also declined with increasing overcrowding and diminished quality health care, which contributed to the spread of communicable diseases in prisons and jails. And widespread closures of state mental hospitals led to the incarceration of a new stream of individuals with mental health disorders. In 2005, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services decided it was time for a revisit. The department tasked the Institute of Medicine with reviewing the existing research guidelines and recommending changes. Not only had the incarceration landscape changed, but our view and understanding of research ethics had changed as well. The new committee formed by the Institute of Medicine recommended that when researching incarcerated populations, we should still use the ethical framework of justice and respect for persons, with some updates to reflect changes in incarceration and society as a whole. The original guidelines emphasized the importance of informed consent, now a required research procedure, and the new guidelines took that step further by looking at the process by which consent was obtained. Existing processes for gaining informed consent did not necessarily provide the best way to allow subjects to make informed decisions. The new guidelines noted the importance of alternatives to time-consuming consent forms, such as a more flexible process, where participants could engage in dialogues with researchers to better understand exactly what they are consenting to. In addition, the new guidelines recommended using third parties to carry out the informed consent process. The new guidelines also shifted toward a moderate protectionist stance to allow more flexibility in research. This new approach was due, in part, to the general consensus that justice-involved individuals wanted to be part of research. The new committee found that justice-involved individuals felt they had the ability to choose to participate, understand their rights as participants, and enjoyed being part of the research process. The importance of including multiple perspectives when researching vulnerable populations is embodied in the idea of collaborative responsibility. In light of the cruel recent history of research in prisons and various other unethical research practices, the original idea of justice focused on making sure that the burden and benefits of research weren't concentrated within a single population. For example, incarcerated individuals weren't subjected to a disproportionate number of medical clinical trials that did not pertain to their status of being incarcerated. While this aimed to protect vulnerable populations, it did so without consulting said populations. Collaborative responsibility calls for the inclusion of different groups when planning, recruiting, and implementing research projects. By including non-researchers in this process, we can get a better view of the risks and benefits and whether they are applicable to the target population.
The new guidelines also viewed justice as more than just protecting individuals from research. It also accounted for the threats that incarceration inherently presents. This includes the access that justice-involved individuals have to healthcare and other services to remedy the risks of research after its inclusion and understanding the risks that may come with participation. Emma Dressler-Hawk and Franco Vaccarinos noted some of these risks in their 2010 article, The Ethics of Focus Groups in Correctional Settings. The authors argue that focus groups, which involve interviewing people in a group setting, have ethical implications when conducted in jails or prisons. Because of the culture in prisons or jails where everyone knows each other, having multiple individuals in a focus group presents extra risks. Not only does it impact the validity of the responses and the willingness of participants to share, but it also creates the threat that others will share what they heard in the focus group with those outside of the group. Here, risks include the potential to stigmatize, embarrass, or create other negative emotions for individuals. While the U.S.'s poor history of performing unethical research on incarcerated subjects and the various additional risks faced by those incarcerated, it's natural to feel inclined to swing the pendulum toward more caution in allowing research with incarcerated populations. But despite these issues, the importance of a moderate protectionist stance may be more relevant today than ever. Emily Wong and colleagues consider this in their article, Ethical Considerations for COVID-19 Vaccine Trials in Correctional Facilities, wherein they argue that the guidelines provided by the original commission need to further evolve, and the current global pandemic is evidence as to why. The original commission restricted the instances where research on justice-involved groups is ethical, these restrictions included when research has minimal risks and looks at a particular condition that impacts justice-involved groups, or if the research would benefit the participants. Wong and colleagues, however, argue that using justice-involved individuals to research a COVID-19 vaccine is ethical. Prisons have been hotspots with individuals in close contact and staff regularly rotating in and out of the prison. This is an especially concerning situation given the state of U.S. prisons and jails today. Remember when we said that the conditions of confinement in prisons and jails in the U.S. had worsened over the years and the incarcerated population exploded? This means that in our prisons and jails, we now have a lot of folks with a lot of health issues that exacerbate the impacts of COVID-19. Wong and colleagues argue that prisons should be included in vaccine trials and that formerly incarcerated individuals and criminal justice system employees should be able to give input into the studies. They also raise the importance of researchers considering racial equity, as both incarceration and COVID-19 have disparate impacts on Black communities. And they further argue that researchers should prioritize vulnerable populations, that individuals should receive the vaccine once it is available, there should be an oversight board, and that the implementation of vaccines in jails and prisons should be studied. The history of research ethics in prisons and jails reveals an ever-evolving process. When working with vulnerable populations, researchers must carefully consider the risks and benefits of the research as a whole, include multiple perspectives when conducting their studies, and implement protections for vulnerable groups without unfairly limiting their involvement. The complexities of ethical considerations can be intimidating, and taking precautions in the research process can be time-consuming. It is a core duty of anyone conducting research, and one that even experienced researchers would do well to study up on. 
That wraps another episode of the Ace It Podcast, where we translate science into sense. Also, remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are essentially 30-second overviews of all the research we cover on the JCoin website. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will definitely help you translate this research to your staff, friends, colleagues, or students. Additionally, we'd like to thank NIDA, Dr. Faye Taxman, and all the students and staff at ACE, including our podcast mastermind, Shannon Magnuson, who is the brainchild behind this podcast. Two additional notes. If you're a researcher and you'd like us to consider using your research for an upcoming podcast, send it to me at d-r-u-d-e-s at gmu.edu. If you'd like to support our podcast to keep the sense coming, tell your colleagues and staff about ACEDIT or assign us to your students. Thanks for listening. Please tune in again soon for another episode of the ACEDIT podcast, where we translate science into sense.